0: back on Fictional Frontiers. I'm your host, Sohei Bawan. Going solo this week, James Barronelli, the founder of RealViews.net, the best online film critic in America, is not going to be with us this week. And I'm going to blame the weather. We had a very strange, I guess uh, you could say last minute or last month (laughs) uh, appearing. Winter storm just showed up in the northeast. It came out of nowhere. We saw the clouds coming in. You know, you oftentimes take a look at the weather forecast and There's an indication there might be one to three inches of snow in March. Typically, everything's kind of done by this point, particularly with global warming. But it was pretty bad yesterday. Uh, And because of that, I was actually at my second viewing or screening of The Batman. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I was supposed to make it back home to record my segment with James. And I didn't make it because the conditions were just horrible. Um, I actually saw the movie in North Jersey and... It was nice getting back into the theaters again. I have to say, every time I get back into a nice theater, it's it's always a pleasure because uh, the atmosphere of the place is unlike watching it at home. I get it; watching it at home is very convenient, but when you go to a theater um, that does a nice job making certain that everything is up to par with respect to presentation, with respect to cleanliness, as far as the aesthetics, the architecture of the place it's it's really nice to get back to a place like that and I was really happy to get back into the theater and watch the Batman I'm going to talk about that in a moment actually but yeah the storm really hit and it was uh it was a bad atmosphere all around and I didn't get a chance to chat with James so next week we'll have him come back and we will talk about what's going to be announced tonight and that is the list of winners at the Critics Choice Award Ceremony Uh, in L.A. James and I are members of the Critics' Choice Association, the largest film critics association in North America, and we both voted. And I'm actually going to take a moment to kind of go through the nominees, and then I'm going to talk about who I voted for. Not everything, um, not all the categories, but just hit some of the highlights. Obviously, a lot of the categories... Uh, We're very competitive, and if you're a nominee or even if you're not a nominee, they're all important. I had a conversation literally yesterday with someone that my company's planning on working with uh, with respect to intellectual property development, and I was explaining to her that oftentimes when you look at a particular intellectual property or project, there's this misunderstanding that a project is successful because of one element in that project. It could be the characters. It could be the writing. There's no doubt that there are certain projects that are very successful because of just one of those elements. But oftentimes, films or projects are not uh, successful primarily only because of those, but because of the other elements that come into play in their development, whether it's the costume designing, whether it's the character designing, whether it's uh, the animation, if it's an animated film or feature. All of these factors come into play And it's really, really important to recognize those efforts because you just never know how one particular element in a film is going to be the most important element and lead to other things. And I always use the case study of Boba Fett as the prime example of that. Boba Fett was introduced in The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. He was on the screen for maybe five minutes at most. If you take all of his um, scenes and put those together... Five minutes, But the character design of Boba Fett has stood the test of time. It's been one of those characters that people have just loved no matter what. Um, the man uh, behind the mask. That was Boba Fett in Star Wars. And so you forward the clock, you move the clock ahead to 2022. Actually 2021 and 2022 when uh, the Boba Fett series was released by Lucasfilm. And you now see that this character, not only from a merchandising and licensing perspective, for all these years, all of these years, we had him in the prequels, we had his backstory in the prequels, but we actually had an entire series dedicated to this character, even though there were other characters in that show as well. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, it was all because of the character design. So never sleep on the other people who work on a lot of these different projects, because at the end of the day, the elements in those other projects can set the stage for whether or not a project, a film, a television series, you name it, resonates with the target audiences or consumers. And so that's why they need to get as much recognition as the actors and the, you know, the directors and the, the celebrities, basically. Because without them, what would it be? That's my little uh, <laughs> rant for today as far as recognizing people behind the scenes or uh, behind the curtain. They always say, pay no, or at least the, the Wizard of Oz said, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, this is a chance for uh, those individuals to get a chance to be recognized, and I think it's really important that they do get that shot. That being said, there are a lot of uh, nominations and not of categories, so I won't be able to go through all of them, but um, some of them I definitely wanted to highlight here. Um, and you know some of the omissions are kind of shocking as well. I want to start actually with best visual effects. That's one of my favorite categories, year in and year out, at the Oscars. And what I find so interesting every year, we always talk about omissions and controversial choices and what have you uh, as far as the acting categories are concerned, or maybe best director or even best picture from time to time. We never really spend that much time on best visual effects. And, you know, I'm going to do a little bit more research into... How that process works. I know that there are different guilds who vote on, uh, you know, particular categories, but certain categories are voted on by everyone. And it always seems like one major film is omitted from the best best visual effects list every year, and it's it's really shocking uh, sometimes what films are left off the list. I remember Revenge. I I believe Tron Legacy. That was one of the worst. That was. I, I think it was nominated. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I take that back. It may not even been nominated. Let me take a look at that while I'm going through this list with you right now. But, you know, films like Tron Legacy, films like uh, Revenge of the Sith or some of the other Star Wars films, not every year have they won Best uh, Visual Effects or won the award for Best Visual Effects. Sometimes they've not even been nominated, which is which is crazy if you think about it. Because some of these films, years later, they don't they don't get nominated. Uh, uh, ignored at all by the masses as a matter of fact when you go to a store like best buy or what have you when they're trying to show you the high resolution televisions they'll focus on scenes from films where oftentimes the visual effects (laughs) uh, from that film uh, were ignored by the oscars Um, i was right tron legacy did not get a nomination for best visual effects that is just stunning. To this day, I'm telling you, go to Best Buy, and Tron Legacy is one of the staples <laughs> of these uh, display uh, setups there for the high definition television. It's always Tron Legacy on loop there. So this year, when I'm looking at the nominees, the one that really, really, you know, stands out, and you've got, you know, some pretty incredible ones. You've got Dune. Um, you've got um, the matrix resurrections you've got uh, nightmare alley which i don't really understand why nightmare alley is on there but nonetheless um, my fellow uh, <laughs> uh critics chose that film but no time to die and shang chi are on there no uh, no spider-man no way home which obviously w- wasn't a, a, you know a viable candidate because we got the uh, ballot before the film came out so no one got a chance to see it but the biggest omission and it's with it's with the oscars as well this film was also left off the list was godzilla versus kong which i felt had far and away the best visual effects by far of any film this year and the two primary characters in that film were both visual effects creations they were The heart of that film—that's what the film was about—and you don't nominate it. I can understand if the you know visual effects were bad, but they were outstanding. So, you know, when you look at the this list, I went with Dune. Uh, I felt that it was the most immersive, and it really uh, led you to believe that this was a universe that uh, had some substance, some heft, some weight to it. Uh, It didn't seem artificial by any stretch. So. That was the film I nominated, or I'm sorry, I did nominate, but I also voted for uh, for Best uh, Visual Effects. So I just wanted to spend a moment on that one. Um, again, the other categories which are really strange for me every year are the Best Costume Design categories because it seems like the genre films always get left off the list. It's always the historical epics or the historical dramas, the period pieces. Those are the ones that get the recognition. Why is it a film like Shang-Chi or... You know, say a film like a Spider-Man, even though it wasn't uh, an option at this point, why are films like that not nominated? Why is it that people sleep on the creative forces and the imagination that's needed to bring these costumes uh, from the printed page, which is comics, to the silver screen or (laughs) to the high-definition television? Why are those always ignored? Really, really shocking to me. Again, I voted for Dune. That was uh, a film that has kind of been universally recognized as highbrow sci-fi fare, and so the costumes were recognized, and I voted for that one because, again, in my opinion, films like that require a lot more imagination, I'm sorry, than films that are recreations of things from the past. You can go to a lot of different countries in Europe. Turkey, for example, has some of the best costume designers, and I'm telling you the work they do there on their serialized dramas – is far superior to the work I've seen on feature films. And they do it in half the time, I would say even a quarter of the time, with one-tenth of the budget. So that's my other rant for today. <laughs> but typically, again, I think one of the reasons why people like the major categories, quote-unquote, the, the ones that are uh, major, because major equals celebrity, are just the, the pomp and circumstance behind those films. They like seeing the stars. They like seeing them. Uh, get recognized. We are in an era of cult of personality and celebrity worship. We've we've been that way for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And now with social media, it's even more pronounced to a degree. Although you're seeing the death of the film movie star to a huge extent now, but it's still there. Um, so people pay attention to those categories. For me, best acting ensemble uh, was a tough category. But... Uh, but you know, the harder they fall. I was happy that film got a, uh, you know, a nod there, because I didn't think a lot of people saw the film. It was on Netflix. It was a western with um, a primarily African American cast, and it was really, really strong as far as the performances across the board there. Um, I wanted to kind of hit on um, a couple categories before I get to the Batman, uh, since everyone does like to hear about the. Celebrity categories. But Best Actor, I went with Denzel Washington in The Tragedy of Macbeth. It was between he and Will Smith. I, I, I could have gone either way, but I just feel that that film was such a challenge. Anyone who can pull off Shakespeare uh, with real Shakespearean dialogue and in a film that is so hard to uh, grasp because ultimately in the end, you're dealing with, like I said, Shakespearean English. And the fact that I was able to understand the bulk of what was happening in that film is a testament to uh, his performance among uh, all those performances in that film. I, I wish it had gotten a, uh, you know, an a, 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 a nomination for uh, best ensemble as well, uh, acting ensemble, but it didn't. Um, best actress, I actually whittled it down to Jessica Chastain and Nicole Kidman, and I think both of those. Uh, Talents really deserved recognition here But I went with Nicole Kidman Because I think that her role Was a little bit more challenging Because she had to not only play Lucille Ball She had to actually play the character Of Lucy and I Love Lucy uh, As well So it was almost like a dual role there And I think she did an amazing job And that film as a whole um, It's always fun to kind of pull the curtain back Or not pull the curtain back, excuse me But turn the clock back uh, I'm getting my adages wrong, but uh, turn the clock back and look at the way Hollywood used to make films and the whole process back in the day. It's, it's always interesting to see, pro- uh, you know, projects like that. So uh, I gave her uh, a lot of credit for that effort. And it's actually just the beginning of their journey. So that leads me actually to Best Picture. And the three films that I kind of whittled it down to were uh, Don't Look Up, Dune, and King Richard. And I know Dune was James's film. That was the film he picked, and I know he hated Don't Look Up. (laughs) He absolutely hated that film. Um, For me, I think that, you know, it came down to Don't Look Up and King Richard. The reason I didn't vote for Dune uh, was because, even though I feel it's an incredibly well-made film, and I'm not trying to compare it to The Fellowship of the Ring or The Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I just feel it's missing the heart, the emotion that really needs to propel a narrative like that. I think that the characters' uh, performances are very strong. The aesthetics are great. The direction is first rate as a whole. But I, de- I never felt connected to any of the characters. I don't feel connected to uh, Paul's journey at all. Uh, it's more along the lines of a historical documentary than it is a feature film for me. And that's the one thing that the Lord of the Rings films did so well is that you really connect with so many characters, even in the first film. Uh, when you you know, establish who the hobbits are and you see this world through their eyes, all of the hobbits, you, you really strongly relate to them from the very beginning. And also characters like Aragorn as well. Those are characters that you just connect to on so many different levels. And I think that that was the one thing that was missing in this film. It's very cerebral. It's very beautiful to watch. It's very well realized, but it does not have that heart. And I was actually, you know, for the longest time thinking, okay, it's a it's a slam dunk. I'm going to vote for Dune for Best Picture. But then I realized, you know, it, it really was missing something. And I think Don't Look Up and King Richard connect on a visceral level with so many different people. And I think that Don't Look Up uh, was the film that actually had the most important things to say In present times uh, what we're going through right now the immediacy of that film was so strong Uh, and King Richard dealt with unfortunately something that we've had to grapple with for you know three four hundred years maybe uh, for even longer than that and that's racism to a huge extent I mean the film really is about overcoming systemic racism so I'm going to leave you guys in suspense I'm going to let you send uh, a message to me and, at, and given the fact that you know how I've been uh, hosting this show over the last 10 years, given, given the fact that I have certain approaches and bends to things, I want to see what you think. Did I vote for Don't Look Up or did I vote for King Richard? Which of those two films did I vote for? And then uh, I'll let you know next week. Maybe. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Uh, just send an email, send a tweet. Uh, to us, and let us know who you think I voted for. Uh, Before we head out, um, I want to briefly talk about The Batman on a second viewing. Now that I've had a chance to watch the film on a second viewing, and I wasn't sitting in the second row, I wasn't exhausted, uh, I wasn't dealing with the nightmarish traffic that is uh, Center City, Philadelphia. And if any of the uh, film industry leaders uh, from the studios are listening in, please, please work with um, Allied, who runs the screenings here in the Philadelphia market, to try to get screenings in New Jersey instead of Philadelphia. Where we're having screenings right now is really a logistical nightmare for many. And uh, there are actually safety issues, to be honest with you, as well, in Philadelphia. And so getting there was such an arduous task for me that it took away from the film. I have to say, watching it the second time, it was so, so, so much more uh, of a uh, fulfilling experience. It was a stronger experience, and I think the film is amazingly well made. Originally, I was leaning towards three stars. Um, I'm now leaning towards three and a half, four stars. Uh, It's it's in the border between three and a half to four. Um, I'm leaning more towards four, actually, to be honest with you because I think on so many levels the film works with me. Uh, sitting up close, I got a greater appreciation for things like the car chase scene in the film, which is one of the best I've seen in a long time. Um, the immersive nature of Gotham City is on full display. And watching it a second time, um, you know, not having to deal with the frustrations and uh, exhaustion that came with watching it in Philadelphia, trying to make it there on time, I was able to get a... Uh, firmer grasp on the mystery behind the riddler's machinations and also the connective tissue between why he was doing what he was doing and his uh insane thought processes but his reasons behind you know trying to include the batman in his efforts or connecting what he was doing to the batman i won't spoil anything else i know it's been probably revealed in many different places on many different platforms about the story as a whole but for me incredibly strong feature film across the board and Robert Pattinson even this time the fear that he elicits uh, in those people who are the criminally inclined uh, I felt it again this time I just think it's by far the best Batman performance I've seen and I have to say it might be my favorite Batman costume that we've seen so far in any of these films it just At least the mask and cowl, I think it's really, really um, believable. For the first time, I believe that there could be a Batman. Back in the day with Superman, the tagline was, you will believe a man can fly. Well, this time I believe that you will believe a man can dress as (laughs) a bat. I was going to say an anthropomorphic bat, but yes, a bat, and it will scare you you will believe that there could be a vigilante like the Batman. And I'm really looking forward to the next two films. I'm always worried about copycats and people kind of imbibing what happens in films like this. But, you know, unfortunately in this day and age, so much of media is filled with such visceral, almost true to life, too true to life, uh, darker elements that you're just adding another uh, brick to that wall and the wall's already been built, so to speak, so you're just adding another brick, and it's getting higher and higher, but, you know, I would rather not add to that brick at all, I think it's better not to, but as far as exposing the underbelly through fiction of what we see oftentimes in many major cities, and many major governments, uh, many organizations where there is a, a hierarchy based on wealth and status, this film did a great job kind of pulling that back, and Hopefully, uh, leading those to, and it never really happens as often as it should, but hoping, I'm hoping that people will start thinking about what happens when you ignore the downtrodden week and when you dangle the carrot of hope only to pull it away. And that's kind of the Riddler story, and that's also why a character like Batman is so important because at the end of the day, he's not only fighting against the forces of darkness... He's also supposed to be a beacon of hope. So on that note, just want to wrap things up, and we'll catch up with you guys next week. Um, actually, uh, before we go, before we go, I have to talk about the other project <laughs> that I'm most excited about this year. And I was going to wait and say this for my conversation with James next week, but it's the Obi Wan Kenobi series, Obi Wan Kenobi. That teaser trailer, trailer, look, I'm tongue-tied because I love Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan Kenobi is my favorite character, by the way, in Star Wars. That trailer was so well produced. When you utilize the Duel of the Fates in your uh, marketing efforts, in, your, in anything related to cop culture, multimedia, what have you, it really adds an epic scope and feel to whatever you're working on. But because of the fact that, really, the duel of the fates. When I think of the duel of fates, so the first thing that comes to my mind is that incredible lightsaber battle between Obi Wan Kenobi, Qui Gon Jinn, and Darth Maul, and the Phantom Menace, which still stands the test of time. is one of the greatest fights of all time, um, in any medium. It just adds a whole other layer, layer to this, and I have to say that, you know, some people were kind of against the idea of having an Obi-Wan Kenobi series saying, look, we know what happens. He's on Tatooine. He's going to be watching Luke. Uh, That's it. He becomes a hermit. There's nothing more to be said. I always felt that there was more to be said. I felt that it was always going to be something that was uh, you know, not really believable to me that he would just sit there and do nothing. He's a Jedi at his heart. In his heart, in his soul, he's a Jedi. Even though the Jedi Order failed and fell and there were problems with the Order, the one thing about Obi-Wan Kenobi was that he embraced the best of what that Order represented. And if you look at the, the prequel films, you'll see that he actually grew himself as well. I remember when he first met uh, Jar Jar Binks. And he kind of dismissed him as a worthless character or creature or what have you, and it was really shocking. You look at that Obi-Wan, and you compare him to the Obi-Wan uh, by the end of the three films, where he realizes that there's the letter of the law, and there's the spirit of the law. He's almost like Qui-Gon, but not quite. You realize this character is somebody who really understands what the, uh, the process of uh, growing is all about when you are a force of good. It's about recognizing that, yes, there are the standards that you cannot violate. There are certain things you cannot violate, but under certain circumstances, there's a gray area that you can kind of uh, allow a little bit of mercy to come into play. And that's what Obi-Wan Kenobi was to me. So I just did not believe that a character like that would just go into the desert and not embrace that notion of goodness, that he would just kind of sit there and sulk. And that was the problem with Luke Skywalker in the sequel trilogy. He did just that, right? He basically just sat there and sulked. <laughs> and I never thought that was, that was something that Obi-Wan Kenobi would ever do. It's very clear in this series that Obi-Wan is going to be active. It's very clear that Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to be a beacon of hope, speaking of and about hope, and he's not going to sit on his laurels. And Ewan McGregor, in my opinion, is the defendant of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I was someone who grew up on Sir Alec Guinness. Uh, You know, James Arnold Taylor did a fantastic job voicing Obi-Wan, but really... Those two performances, the James performance and the Ewan performance, are the ones that stood out most strongly to me because that's the most time we spent with Obi-Wan. I give the nod to Ewan because Ewan actually kind of set the table for James to a huge extent, even though James did an amazing job. I mean, I I don't want to sleep on that either. But I will say, seeing Ewan McGregor back again as Obi-Wan Kenobi, a little bit more grizzled, Slightly broken, but not giving up. I'm really interested in seeing what's going to happen there. And then you've got Hayden Christensen coming back. You've got the Inquisitors coming back. And please, Lucasfilm, work on the design of the Inquisitors. You can make some adjustments. There's still time. There's still time. The Grand Inquisitor who's in there does not look like the Grand Inquisitor from Star Wars Rebels. And I'm not someone who complains that much about it, but it's such a shift. No excuse, especially since the species that the Grand Inquisitor is from was already created in the prequel film. So we already know what he looks like. You have to you have to go back and fix that. Nonetheless, this is the show, this is the film, this is the series I'm most looking forward to this year. And so uh, on that note, we'll catch up with you next week. I want to know what your thoughts are with respect to what happens tonight at the Critics' Choice, what's happening in genre entertainment as a whole, And maybe next week we'll talk about Warner Brothers shifting their entire, uh, not entire, but most of their film schedule to 2023. What does that mean for DC Comics films moving ahead? You're listening to Fictional Frontiers, my friends. Everyone be safe, and we'll talk to you next week.